your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8 as we continue in our series through Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 8. I suspect many of you have read or are familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis's well-known book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you're not a reader, you've probably seen one of the various film adaptations that have been made over time. But just to refresh our memories or to inform you if, uh, if you've never heard of this, the basic plot of the story is that four siblings in World War II England find a portal into another world called Narnia. And as they begin to explore Narnia, they find a world that is under a deep, dark spell. There is an evil witch that has made it perpetually winter in the land of Narnia. And the creatures of Narnia that do not serve the evil witch recognize that things are not as they should be. It's always cold. There's little food. And worst of all, there is no Christmas. Yet the creatures of Narnia have hope. And it's expressed in a rhyme that reminds them that Aslan, the great lion, the rightful ruler of Narnia, will restore all things. And they say to themselves, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death, and when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Do you feel this sort of longing for things to be set right as you live in this world? Is it plain to you that things are not as they should be? We walk through a world that is, it is filled with suffering. It is filled with sickness, with sin, with pain, and with sorrow. And this morning as we come to the third healing account in Matthew chapter 8, we'll see that as the Messiah Jesus doesn't only come to die for the sins of his people. But the part of his mission is the restoration and redemption of all things, including our bodies and the entire created world. We're going to start looking very uh, narrowly, we could say, specifically at Peter's mother-in-law. And then we'll look at how Jesus heals the crowds. And then finally, we'll see how Jesus will heal his people. Let's read Matthew 8, 14 through 17. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our Lord, we thank you for the scriptures, for your written word that is trustworthy for us, that is challenging for us at times, and Lord, that is so comforting and so encouraging for us. Oh Lord, as we look at this text this morning, Lord, I pray you would comfort the heart of your people by what we see Christ doing, by who we see that Christ is. Lord, may that bring hope to heavy hearts today. And may it remind us 
of the great Savior we have in your Son. Please help me, Lord, to proclaim your word faithfully, to exalt Christ, and to glorify your name for the benefit of your people today. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We look at verses 14 and 15. We see Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And we find ourselves still in the town of Capernaum, the city that Jesus had traveled to after giving the Sermon on the Mount. It was on the way to Capernaum that Jesus healed the leper. We saw that a few weeks ago. And in Capernaum that Jesus healed the centurion's servant as well. Now remember, Jesus actually has been living in Capernaum since Matthew chapter 4 when John the Baptist was arrested. Jesus has been using Capernaum as a home base, and it was actually here that he calls the first disciples. And as we see in verse 14, Jesus has now come to the disciple Peter's house. Peter's still living here. And when Jesus enters Peter's house, he sees Peter's mother-in-law lying sick. She's ill. Mark 1.29 tells us in the same account that uh, it's not just Jesus and Peter, but actually that Andrew, Peter's brother, and James and John are all here in the house too. Luke tells us that as Jesus enters the house, uh, these disciples go to Jesus and, and tell him about Peter's mother-in-law's illness. They say, Jesus, help. Now we learn, of course, from this that Peter himself was married. Uh, in fact, several of the apostles were married. But it's likely that Peter's father-in-law had died. And as it was common in the time, Peter and his wife took in his aged, widowed mother-in-law to take care of her in her old age. But tragically, she has fallen ill. Luke 138 tells us this isn't just any fever, but it is a high fever. It's a very serious situation. Um, And that kind of gives some urgency to the disciples' appeal to Jesus. A high fever, uh, of course, can be fatal or cause permanent damage, and that's not even getting into the underlying condition that the body's responding to. In the ancient world, of course, there were no medications that were used. Uh, Fevers were thought of as their own disease. A fever itself was an illness. Given the very likely elderly age of Peter's mother-in-law, this is serious. Peter's scared. And so Jesus, for the third time in Matthew chapter 8, decides to heal. And the healing of Peter's mother-in-law in verse 15 occurs really in three steps that Matthew lays out for us. And ultimately, as we saw with the past two healings in this chapter, Jesus demonstrates his authority over the natural realm. First, Matthew tells us that Jesus touches the hand of Peter's mother-in-law. This might seem insignificant. It's just a touch on the hand. But Jesus is actually breaking two significant Jewish taboos. You see, in Jewish tradition, it was taboo to touch someone with a fever. Again, you don't want to touch sick people. Um, So you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't touch someone with a fever. Second, uh, it was taboo for a man to touch a woman who was not his wife. Now, these were not prohibitions from the Old Testament law, but they were uh, traditions in that Jewish society, very deeply ingrained in the culture. And yet Jesus, out of a much greater concern for Peter's mother-in-law and a much lesser concern for man-made rules, touches her hand. And he demonstrates his compassion for her. When we look at the other gospel accounts, uh, I'll just kind of summarize them so we don't have to flip back and forth too much, Uh, we see some additional details. Luke 4.39 tells us that Jesus, in addition to touching her hand, actually uh, rebukes the fever. Uh, He's not treating it as a sentient thing or or a demon, but rather he is speaking, right, be healed, sort of as we saw with the leper, and demonstrating the power of his word. 
Mark 131 tells us that Jesus doesn't just touch her hand, but he actually takes her by the hand and lifts her up as he heals her. He helps her sit up in bed. He gives her strength that she herself did not have. And looking back at Matthew 8.15, we see the second step here. The result of Jesus' touch and rebuke is, as Matthew says, the fever leaves her. It departs from her. Uh, It doesn't just slowly decrease in temperature throughout the night. She doesn't need an ice bath to get that last little fever taken care of, but it's completely gone. There's no resistance from the fever. It's not putting up a fight here. Jesus doesn't have to speak again for a second time a way one might have to do to to a a disobedient child. No, the fever leaves Peter's mother-in-law completely. What Jesus wills, he does, and what he does, he does perfectly and completely. Thirdly, Matthew tells us that after the fever has left her, Peter's mother-in-law rises from the bed and begins to serve Jesus. And Mark and Luke tell us it's not just Jesus she serves, but all of the disciples too. You and I usually need a little bit of recuperation after we get over illness and fever, right? We need a day or two to kind of gather our strength back up. Not Peter's mother-in-law. This elderly woman is now up and about serving as if she had never been sick. She's been made instantly and completely well. And she begins to serve Jesus and the disciples food, drink, typical uh, Middle Eastern hospitality. And with that, Peter's mother-in-law is healed. The fever is gone. Of the three healing accounts that we've seen in Matthew chapter 8, this is um, probably the least detailed, right? Much more detail with the centurion, much more detail with the leper. But here, two verses. Two verses is all we have. We don't have any information about the kind of faith or lack of faith that Peter's mother-in-law had. And that's not really the point of this healing. The point of this healing is, of course, the authority of Jesus over the natural world, over sickness. But when we take these three healings, of Peter's mother-in-law, the centurion servant, and the leper, and we put them side by side, we actually see something pretty interesting that we might miss if we were not a first century Jewish reader. We've seen three individuals be healed in a very personal and compassionate way, haven't we? But consider for a moment again who they were, a leper, a Roman soldier, and a woman. Now that may not seem significant to us, but to a first century Jewish audience, it would have been a a little bizarre, maybe even a little scandalous, because Romans, lepers, and women were all viewed as second-class citizens in ancient Jewish society. These were not the kind of people that would have been the stars or the upper, uh, upper layer of, of this world back then. They would have been considered lesser, unworthy, perhaps. They were looked down upon in many ways, and yet, these are the ones we see Jesus healing. And again, we have to remember, who is Matthew's audience? It is first century Jewish readers primarily, right? And when we remember who uh, first century Jewish readers tended to think were going to be the recipients of God's grace, favor, and blessing, it was not these three groups of people. Matthew, by highlighting these, uh, these, these healings here under the inspiration of the Spirit, is actually making quite an amazing point about the mission of Christ and painting quite a picture of Christ's heart Jesus himself said that he did not come to save those who think they're upstanding, good, or righteous, but sinners. He didn't come to heal those who are well, but the sick. 
Now, we're looking at the physical healing ministry of Jesus here, but again, this reveals the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. Jesus goes to those who would have had very little resources in the eyes of the Jewish people. And he heals them compassionately. Friend, if you are a sinner, if you are a sufferer, and you know it, and you seek Christ, then Christ's heart is for you. Uh, as one author says in his book, Gentle and Lowly, the, the cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move towards that sin and suffering, not away from it. Now, this is not cutting out the justice or the wrath of God upon sin, but it is to say that Christ shows mercy to sinners and sufferers. That's what Jesus has done with the leper, the centurion, and now Peter's mother-in-law. He's not pushed them away, but actually he has moved toward them to help them in their time of need. And as we see in verse 16, there's far more than three sinners and sufferers here who need help. In verse 16, we see point number two, Jesus heals the crowds. Jesus heals the crowds. Matthew writes that, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. As the day begins to fade and evening comes, the people of Capernaum actually start to show up on Peter's doorstep looking for Jesus. Uh, maybe they heard about the leper. Maybe they watched Jesus heal him. Maybe they heard about the centurion's servant. Maybe they heard about Peter's mother-in-law. We don't know, but in any case, they're aware of Jesus' power and his ability to heal, and they brought with them their sick family and friends. Now, why did they wait till evening? Why would they wait that long? Well, Mark and Luke tell us that this was actually on the Sabbath day. And in, uh, in, in, in the Jewish Sabbath, the holiday started the night before and ended the night of the Sabbath, from, from the first star to the first star. It's very likely that these individuals had to physically carry their loved ones to Jesus, a work which, according to Jewish tradition, was forbidden on the Sabbath. So they had to wait until the Sabbath was actually over to bring their loved ones to Christ to be healed. And, and Jesus is going to, as we'll see later in the Gospel, uh, kind of just blow this whole tradition apart, right? He's going to heal people and do all kinds of acts of mercy on the Sabbath. But these people, right, wanting to honor Jewish tradition, are waiting until the Sabbath is over. And this group of people becomes so large that in verse 18, Jesus uh, is surrounded by a crowd at the end of his healing of them. He's surrounded by an entire crowd of people. Matthew tells us that these uh, people, this crowd of Capernaum, Capernaumites, uh, have brought two kinds of people to Jesus. Those who are physically ill and those who are oppressed by demons. Now, we've already seen Jesus heal the physically ill all the way back to Matthew 4. Jesus has been doing this regularly, frequently. And we've seen him do it in detail, of course, in the first part of Matthew chapter 8. Jesus does not view healing the sick as beneath him, as just some busy work as he makes his way to the cross, but rather as an integral part of his ministry as the Messiah, uh, which Matthew's going to bring out in the next verse. But there are also those who are demonically oppressed in the crowd. And the portrayal of demonic activity in the New Testament nearly always includes an element of physical suffering of some kind, as we'll see here in a few weeks as we look at the demon-possessed man in the Gadarene. But like many diseases, right, this of course is not a disease, but like many diseases in the ancient world, there was no real cure for demon possession, right? There's no pill to uh, have, a, have an exorcism. 
So it is fitting that these individuals are brought to Christ, the one who can help. And Matthew describes these people as oppressed by demons. And the, the word in the Greek is a daimonatsamai, which is a term that's used to describe really a variety of demonic activity. Um, it's used to describe demonic oppression. It's used to describe demonic possession. Um, so the same word is used in both of those instances. But really, it refers to any kind of attack from evil spirits, from demons, whether that's being influenced or assaulted or directly inhabited and controlled by demons. Uh, now, today, right, many people view demons as a superstition, as a myth. But in the ancient world, it was taken for granted that these beings were real, that they were active, and that they interacted with human beings. Now, Matthew does not write in any way, shape, or form as if these demons are fictional. Right? He treats them as real, which, according to the whole testimony of Scripture, they are. They are real beings. One commentator describes how in the ancient world, people would try to deal with demonic oppression by a means of incantation, right? Spells or pain compliance techniques like, like smelly roots, right? Trying to um, make the demons suffer or invoking higher spirits to get rid of lower spirits. And without a doubt, these so-called remedies were completely ineffective. Uh, demons are not subject to magic spells. They're not subject to smelly roots or burning sage. And human beings have no power to control more powerful demons or less powerful demons. It's very likely that the people in the crowd have tried these things for their loved ones. They're probably out of options. They're at their wit's end. And so they come to Christ. And what happens when they do? Matthew tells us that Jesus is able to cast out the demons with a word, with a word. Remember, demons are not subject to normal human authority. And Jesus is able to cast them out with a word. No magic spells, no potions, no appeal to other demons. Jesus merely speaks, and the demons have to go. Jesus' inherent authority is not limited to the physical realm, but it extends to the spiritual realm, too. He is, after all, the creator of these angels in their original state of goodness before the fall. And he has full authority over them when he tells them to go they must go. We'll see this more as we go through Matthew's gospel. But as we see these demonic deliverances by Jesus, and as we're going to see more, we need to understand that Jesus is actually beginning an assault on the kingdom of darkness. He's actually beginning to plunder Satan's domain uh, as a stronger man conquers the house of a strong man in Matthew 12. These demonic deliverances are a foreshadowing of the great blow that will be dealt to Satan's power at the cross and the resurrection as well as the final destruction that Satan will face. So these crowds come to Christ seeking his power for the healing of their loved ones, and mercifully, compassionately, Jesus heals them. I love what Luke 4.40 says about this event. Luke writes that Jesus laid his hands on every one of them and healed. Jesus wasn't done until he had healed every single person that had been brought to him. That's amazing, isn't it? That's so much different than the way you and I handle things. Well, okay, I got the first 15, but I got to go. I got to go do this other stuff. But no, Jesus makes a point to heal every single person that is brought to him. He's not annoyed by this crowd of needy people. He's not inconvenienced by them. But instead, it presents another opportunity for him to display both his authority and his compassion. Friends, do you bring your burdens, your suffering, your pain to Christ? Are you at the end of your rope? Are you feeling hopeless? I'm sure that's how many of the people who came to Christ that evening felt. Said, if this doesn't work, I don't know what we're going to do. 
But true hope, true healing was available freely in the presence and power of Christ. Now maybe some of you are dealing with suffering right now, maybe sickness, and you, you wonder, is God even hearing my prayers? If God really cared about me, if God really loved me, he would deal with my sickness and my suffering right now. But consider that the people in this crowd essentially had to wait 30 years for the healing that they sought for their loved one. God's timetable may not look like ours, and it often doesn't. But we can know that God's character is good, that he has compassion for those who suffer the effects of living in this sin-corrupted world, that he is able and does provide comfort and healing for his people, not always in the time and way we might expect, but according to his wisdom. And, and brothers and sisters, that's where we must walk by faith. It's not blind belief. Faith is not blind belief. It is actually a, an explicit trust in something outside of you, rooted in who God is, his character. And what a display of that character we see in the person and work of Christ as he heals every one of these suffering people that are brought to him. In fact, Matthew tells us in the next verse that these physical and spiritual healings are not just a sideshow to the main act of the cross. They're not just something Jesus is doing to pass the time. But they're actually an integral part of his mission and ministry as the Messiah. And in fact, Jesus' healing ministry is not just isolated to living in the first century, but Jesus' healing redemption applies to all his people, past, present, and future. That brings us to our third point. Jesus heals his people. We tend to make a mistake uh, sometimes in the way that we think about the relationship between our body and our soul. Um, you've maybe heard the quote, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. You have a body, right? You are a soul, you have a body. This is a popular quote, um, but it's unbiblical. It's unbiblical. God created man as body and soul, both parts, right? One being composed of physical and spiritual elements. Your body is just, a, uh, just as much a part of who you are as your soul is. And ultimately, it's not only our soul that Jesus saves, but what happens in the resurrection at his return? He saves and redeems our physical bodies as well. Now, Paul writes in Romans 8.23 that we are waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. So when we see Jesus healing in the Gospels, we must remember and realize that this is actually pointing to a much larger reality, to a bigger picture of God's redemptive plan. And Jesus is concerned with the physical well-being of his people. And in fact, it, it, as I said, it's an integral part of his mission and ministry as a Messiah. And Matthew draws our attention to that in verse 17. Matthew writes that all of these healings were to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew's quoting here from Isaiah 53, verse 4. Uh, let's turn there briefly. Isaiah 53, verse 4, just to see it in context. Isaiah 53, of course, is a well-known passage about what the Messiah would do, what the servant of the Lord would do when he came. It describes the servant suffering for his people, dying for their sins. 
And as we read Isaiah 53, verse 4, Matthew's quoting from the first half of the verse, we read, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Well, Matthew's quotation says he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So what's going on there? Why is there a difference between what Matthew's quoting and what we read in Isaiah? Well, a possible option is that Matthew's quoting from the Septuagint, right, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, but the Septuagint actually is very different in what it says than, than what Matthew is quoting here. And actually, Matthew's quoting something almost identical to the literal Hebrew of Isaiah 53, 4. The reason that these verses read differently is that the Hebrew words in Isaiah 53, 4 actually have um, a range of meaning. So they can mean grief, they can mean sorrow, but they can also refer to illness or disease. You can see how those words are, are somewhat related, right, but with different senses. Now, Matthew in the Greek uses words that explicitly refer to physical illness and suffering here. Um, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Matthew's essentially playing off of the possible meanings of the words used in Isaiah 53.4 to connect the healing ministry of Christ to Isaiah's prophecy of the work and identity of the Messiah. Really what Matthew's doing here is making the point that one of the roles of the Messiah is as the ultimate healer of his people. The ultimate healer of his people. Now, some people have, have uh, wrongly used this text, both in Matthew and in Isaiah, to make a claim that the atonement of Christ guarantees physical healing now in this life, if you have enough faith, right? They claim that Jesus died so you could be healthy, and you just need to refuse the sickness by having more faith in what Jesus has done, right? That's called health and wealth teaching. That's called the prosperity gospel, um, and it has more in common with Buddhism than it does with Christianity. It is heretical garbage, right? The purpose of the cross is to deal with man's sin. That's the purpose of the cross, right? To provide substitutionary atonement for our guilt for breaking God's law as Christ bears that sin in our place. The purpose of the cross is to demonstrate God's love for sinners, as Paul tells us in Romans 5, not to guarantee health and wealth. That being said, we can't ignore the point Matthew's making. Matthew's just not connecting this point to the atonement, right? That's what we have to keep in mind. When we look at the big picture of Jesus' work as the Messiah, we have to understand his work is not isolated to the cross. Jesus, as the Messiah, does more, not less, but more than die for the sins of his people. We see in all four Gospels there is a frequent and heavy emphasis on Jesus' healings. And while a primary purpose of these miracles is to demonstrate Jesus' authority and to validate his message as coming from God, another major aspect is to paint a comprehensive picture of redemption. Let's go all the way back to the garden for a second, right in your mind. God made man from the dust of the earth, physical in his body, and breathed into him a soul, right? Breathed into him life. And God called this embodied condition good. It was good that man had both body and soul, right? That was a good thing. But when sin enters the picture, sin affects both body and soul. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, our souls became inclined towards evil from birth. 
right? And, and as described in the Bible as being spiritually dead, instead of seeking God, our natural inclination from birth is to run from God, to rebel against God, to try to usurp God, to sin. Instead of worshiping God, we fashion gods of our own making, and spiritually we are corrupted. Um, but at the fall of man, the entrance of sin into the world also has an effect on the physical aspect of creation as well. It has an effect on our bodies. And we see this immediately after the fall. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verse uh, 16 as God speaks to the man and woman about the consequences of their sin, right? They've eaten of the fruit of the garden. They've given in to Satan's temptation. They've disobeyed God. They become ashamed, right, naked and uh, fear God instead of walking with God. But there is more to come as, as a result of the consequence of their sin. And look at how the world is now changed. They've lived in a garden where all they need to do are tend these beautiful trees that produce delicious fruit, right? It's a, a paradise. But now things are different. God says to the woman in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bear children, right? There's an increase in physical suffering for Eve in childbirth. Right? That's a result of sin entering the world. When we look down to verse 17, we see that God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. There is also an increase in physical suffering in working for Adam. And we really see it when we look down at verse 19. When God says to Adam, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Man is no longer untouched by death. But now he will return to the dust of the earth. And that, of course, refers to physical death. But wrapped up in that is the decay of the body. Wrapped up in that is viruses, bacteria, genetical, genetic illnesses, excuse me, that we face in this world. All of that stuff. Illness and suffering occur in this world because sin has affected the created order, which God originally called good. J.C. Ryle describes it like throwing a handful of gravel into machinery. Right? God did not create man to be diseased and sick. Now, that was not part of the original design. Again, J.C. Ryle is helpful here. He says, can we think that he who made all things very good made Adam's race to sicken and to die? The idea is, to my mind, revolting. It introduces a grand imperfection in the mix, midst of God's perfect works. Brothers and sisters, we have to understand God, God did not create the world in the form we see it today. That's the result of sin entering into the creation. The reality is the work of the first Adam plunged this world into brokenness, into disarray, into corruption. Paul writes in Romans 5.12 that Adam's sin brought death, right? And again, tied up in that is sickness and suffering. And we read in Romans 8.21 that the entirety of creation, including our physical bodies, is in bondage to corruption. God did not create the world this way, but because of the fall, it exists and remains this way. But fortunately for us, there is a second Adam, Jesus Christ. And he comes not only to save us from our sin and guilt, which he does, but he comes in the broader scope of things to undo 
the fall, to restore that which was lost by the first Adam. If we had time, we'd, we'd look in depth at Romans chapter 5, but you can make a note and look there later to see how that plays out. The Christ's healing ministry totally reveals his compassion, but more importantly, in, in, in some ways, it points beyond the here and now to the age to come. These healings are a picture of the age to come breaking in upon this age in which we live, a sign that the king has come to reconquer his kingdom. You know, think about it. If we're healed in this life and then we just die to be spirits floating around in the sky, that's not a total victory. That's not a total redemption, is it? Our bodies are there corrupted in, in, in the ground. And Christ is not in the business of half measures. When we see the healing miracles of Christ, we need to understand they're pointing forward towards two aspects of the future consummation of the kingdom of God. Two aspects. First, the healing miracles of the Messiah point towards the resurrection that he will bring his people at his return. Now turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> We'll look at verse 42, down to 49 at first here. Paul is writing about the resurrection of the dead here. And here's what he says. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there also is a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, there's a lot we could talk about here, but I just want to highlight a couple things. First, notice how Paul compares the quality of the body we have now to the quality of the body we will have when Christ returns to resurrect and gather his people. Our current bodies are described as perishable, corrupted by sin, weak, natural, dusty, right? That's, that's our experience on this earth. It's pretty accurate. But Paul also describes this body as a seed. What a great picture that is, right? When you grow a plant in your garden, you plant a seed. Or, you know, you plant a plant. But that plant's coming from a seed, right? You're, you're not getting a plum tree from a carrot seed. You're getting a carrot from a carrot seed. That seed turns into something greater than it is. But it is not uh, other than it is, right? You're not getting cabbage from a carrot seed again. The body that Paul's describing here in the resurrection is us. It's not a separate body. It is this body, but changed. Just as a seed sprouts into a plant, this body is a seed that will bloom in the resurrection. And at that point, this body will be raised, imperishable, powerful, glorified, spiritual. But it's still us. It's still our body. You are the only one that God has given your body to, like it or not. That's part of who you are, not just your soul, but your body as well. 
And look what Paul says will occur when Jesus returns, just a few verses down, starting in 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? When Christ returns, death is fully and finally defeated, and our body puts on immortality and imperishability. With, with the defeat of death and the resurrection, our bodies will be fully healed, fully redeemed, fully glorified. There will be no sickness. There will be no suffering. There will be no weakness or decay in our physical bodies anymore. And the healings of Jesus in the Gospels are a foretaste of this. Um, they, they point forward to the ultimate healing mission of the Messiah in the resurrection of his people. Um, some of you suffer chronic and at times debilitating health problems. Uh, the healing miracles of Jesus are a promise to you that Jesus will heal your body. Uh, some of you suffer uh, the, the breaking down of your body, right, in old age. The healing miracles of Jesus are a promise to you that Jesus will heal your body. Some of you have faced and may face life-threatening illnesses and afflictions. And the healing miracles of Jesus are a promise to you that these diseases are not the last word. Jesus will heal your body. The question is when? Perhaps in this life, he can, he does, but he may wait until the next. If he waits to heal your body until the resurrection, know this, he will not leave you, he will not desert you, but he will be with you and strengthen you spiritually as your physical body may fail. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.16, 4, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. But the healing miracles of Christ even point beyond the resurrection of the body to a complete restoration of the entire created order in the new creation. We're not going to be resurrected to experience eternity in a still fallen world. That wouldn't make any sense, right? No, the healing seen in the miracles of Christ is a promise, essentially, of how Jesus will make all things right. And we see this at the end of the book of Revelation, right, which, which is how the story ends. And we, we, we see this in beloved passages to many Christians. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, as we see what is described there for us. Look in the first few verses of Revelation chapter 21. John describes this. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. John describes a vision of the new heavens and the new earth 
and how the new Jerusalem, which is a, a symbol of uh, God's glorified elect, come to dwell with their God in this new creation, and how this remade and restored world has no death, no weeping, no pain, no physical sickness or suffering of any kind. I don't know about you, but that brings a longing and a relief to my soul. As John continues writing what he sees here into chapter 22, in verse 2 he describes how there is a tree here in the new creation. It is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The first Adam ate of a tree and cast his descendants into sin and suffering and never got to eat of the tree of life. But the second Adam redeems his people from sin and suffering and brings them to the tree of life that they may eat of it freely, that they would be fully saved, fully restored, fully remade. Isn't that beautiful? How glorious our Redeemer is. How complete His salvation is. How short is this life and its trials compared with the eternity that we will share with Him. Eating of that tree of life without sin, without sickness, without struggle, without trauma, without suffering, healed. Body and soul. It is in the new creation that true, full, and final healing is guaranteed to be found. And as the Messiah, Jesus comes not only to pay for the sins of his people, but it is return for us to redeem us completely from sin's effects on our body and soul. That's the ultimate and glorious reality that the healing ministry of Jesus the Messiah points forward to. As Jesus himself says from the throne in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the ultimate message of the healing miracles of Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the healing ministry of Christ on display for us in the pages of Scripture. And Lord, we, we long Lord, in, in so many ways, to see that kind of healing done for our loved ones in our own lives. And Father, you work in ways that we don't understand, but what you've made clear to us, Lord, is that you do not leave loose ends, but that you have a plan of redemption that guarantees the healing of both our body and soul. And that you have placed that plan into the hands of your Son, who does all things well. So Father, would you help us to cling to those promises of Revelation 21 and 22, displayed in the healing ministry of Christ. Lord, would you help us to cling to those things? Lord, that even as, as this life is full of sorrows and, Lord, in so many ways full of suffering, that, Lord, all things will be made right. They will be made new. And that for eternity. 
We thank you for your son, the redeemer of our body and soul. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.